the cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. Let's make that climb together up the, the green, green peak. peak with your host, Richard Zwicky. Hi, I'm Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak, and we're excited to have joining us today Brent Zettel, who uh, out of uh, Saskatoon, Canada. Brent's one of the leading pioneers of the industry, uh, the medical cannabis industry, both in Canada and worldwide, um, having led both uh, many advances in clinical research, but also in the development of the industry as a whole. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Brent. Oh, my pleasure, Richard. So... You know, for most people, uh, the industry is really recent, but for you, you started off back in uh, 1988 uh, developing prairie plant systems and then evolved into uh, Canamed, which became the first recipient of the uh, licenses from Health Canada to produce medical cannabis. And uh, from there, you drove that growth and the development uh, over almost, uh, you know, 16, 18 years um, from when you had those licenses, including being not just the first licensee, but the first uh, initial stock off, uh, public stock offering on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange of a medical cannabis company. So you broke a lot of ground and pioneered it for uh, many of us. And you're now into phase two with uh, your journey with Zias. And you want to tell, let everybody know what Zias is because it's uh, still relatively new in the market. Yeah, Zeiss Life Sciences is a, basically is a Canamed 2.0, but it's a we're moving forward with the idea that we want to have. What, what we saw was where patients, the need for patients was a, there was a strong unmet need, and so what we really wanted to do was to you know pick up from where we left off because our mission really wasn't over. So we founded it uh, with the idea that we really wanted to elevate the, you know, cannabinoid formulations as a standard of care, and then, and then also we even wanted to include the protein-based uh, programs or products we had as well. And then, really, our goal is is in pursuit of, you know, we want to have this transformational impact on patients' lives. So that's really at the heart of our mission, and that we would really think that this uh, we want to pick up the pieces where we where we were, and we as a team we're focused on making that happen. Yeah, and that's, that's incredibly important because a lot of people lose sight of the fact in this industry that so many of us started with a, with a desire, you know, you can call it social impact or you can call it whatever, but for the, you know, for advocacy and product innovation to help patients and building the businesses around that yeah, is, we, uh, the mission. Yeah, back to the mission, yeah, it's for surely health patients. Like we, we see the world of it. If you look at cannabis industry 2.0, it's basically going into three different main initiatives or directions. You have the, the recreational market, which is, I would call the TAC centric. You have the CBD market, which is a nutraceutical or wellness centric. And then you're going to have the, what I would call the true pharmaceutical aspects of this, which is a totally different application, which usually involves at least two cannabinoids working at the, at the same time. And so when we're looking for, for something that's impactful or helping patients, we're finding that you know, historically we saw you need at least a couple of cannabinoids working in concert with varying the ratios, and the patients were using a specific ratio relative to their condition. 
when we were started in 2000 was when we had the first contract. In 2003, we, we had to supply patients across the country. And patients had to have one of eight conditions, such as MS or arthritis. But if they didn't have one of those eight conditions, they were denied access. And then in 2014, when Health Canada changed the regulations, they brought in the new regulations, that's when the, everything changed again, where then doctors were allowed to prescribe for whatever the patients needed, as long as it was within the context of certain limits on the, how much uh, concentration of THC would be per mill or per gram of product that, that was available. And so the doctors, they basically took that and ran with it. Over a period of two years, our, the, the conditions that we were recording moved from eight conditions up to 168 conditions. And if you look at the big broad spectrum of what we saw was 58% of all our patients were using it for managing some form of chronic pain. And then another 19% for what we call neuropsychiatric type of conditions, such as PTSD and, and ADHD and, and anxiety. And so we said, you know, there's something material here. It's just that we have a strong, uh, what's the new words are real world evidence, but we don't have is, is good clinical data. And we really need to move into the, where we have to harness the science and bring some discipline to really put some, some of the bones to efficacy as well as to the, how well it works from a safety perspective to get the medical community to really understand how to properly dose this and where it might apply. And so we knew that we were at the early days. It's ironic that in 2003, the same questions for efficacy were asked then that they are still today. And it as is. a society, we, we still haven't moved the needle. It is amazing how, you know, in the last 16 years, those questions, although they've been posed, we haven't been, it's not that we're not able to answer them, but it's been a, it hasn't been the primary <clears throat> outcome, although there's been, you know, various studies, nothing that's concrete or hard and fast across it. But there are a lot of projects ongoing that are university-led research projects uh, headed in that direction, which is great. And I like the way you break up the 2.0 phase into the you know the three channels with um, the THC and REC, the CBD towards the more wellness nutraceutical and the two plus cannabinoid combinations being in medical, and I know a lot of people um, get confused on that. And you know, in the many areas of the world, the industry is just two things: it's CBD and THC, and they don't recognize or and don't have the information yet to really explore how much broader that goes. But also there's, I know a lot of shocked faces when people recognize, you know, one is a trigger for the other sometimes to help patients. Um, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that I think that one of the things that's interesting is that our natural system, the endocannabinoid system, they discovered the first two receptors. It's called the CB1 and CB2 receptor in the early 90s. And then they found, we found two natural cannabinoids, endocannabinoids. And it just so happens that the plant produces those cannabinoids that sort of parlay with our natural systems. Well, the newest information is they think that there, there's a hypothesis about Brown that they think that there's a, probably in the neighborhood of 100 different endocannabinoids and that the plant itself, the plants we use, there's, they, it naturally produces over 122 different cannabinoids. And we know through the literature and through lab analysis, at least seven of them are active on the human system in some way, shape, or form. So it becomes a question of drilling down into uh, what are the what are the combinations that are really effective that the body can use and can put towards certain things because what appears on the, to us now is that the system, our natural system, and its interface with cannabinoids is far more complex than we ever imagined. 
And so that's why this science is exciting because it's a new frontier. We can start to put together those formulations and those pieces that, that really hone in and give a proper symptom management going forward. It does. And, you know, the point you raised there is something a lot of people overlook, which is this plant um, matches up well with an organ in our body, endogenous cannabinoid system. But it's something that is true across all mammals and, you know, many of the animals, uh, animal kingdom. But it's a plant which evolved in an area of the world that's different from where human migration started off from. And that's one of those mysteries is how did a plant that evolved... Uh, in one area match up so well to all animal and all life across across the planet. And uh, how that fits together and leads us into the future is going to be a really interesting experiment uh, in terms of discovery of our own evolution in many ways. I 100% agree with that. We find that you know, the space is in terms of research, clinical research, and also drilling down on some of the interaction with the cannabinoids in the human system has been, I would call it, artificially suppressed. Since prohibition in 1937, science has been really stymied from really drilling down on the detail of how this can, can be. But what's ironic is that if you look at THC in particular, or if you look at hemp seeds, they date back to 2000 BC. So we're talking about a, a compound and a, from a plant that's been around with human beings at least in recorded history for 4,000 years. And yet here we are in the 21st century and we still haven't really figured out what specifically can work on, a, on our health condition with all of our science and technology. And just to my, from my vantage point, it's just the function of the fact 1937 was what brought the drawbridge down that disallowed science to continue to explore the potential of that. Because in 1937, prior to Prohibition, 28% of all medications in the United States were cannabis-based. Yeah, it's an amazing stat for how pervasively... Uh usage was as a, a medical uh, ingredient and how it was wiped out overnight, but also how all of the medical knowledge was lost overnight and we're rediscovering it. Let's come back to some of that after the break. We're uh, going to take a short break and coming back with uh, Brent Settle with Zayas. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. They have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. 
Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at s-h-o-o-g-i-e-s dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Oh, lady marijuana llama, tell you something now About a game for your phone, gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little, your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Himping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint Business and cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. All right, and we're back with Brent Zettel with Zayas uh, joining us today. And Brent, as uh, we were talking about earlier, you know, you're a pioneer in the industry. And now, you know, with Zayas, you're going through uh, really the evolution and development of the, of the company, addressing some of the things you wish you'd been able to do, uh, get to at Canamed before it was uh, sold to Aurora. And looking at those uh, and focusing even deeper into enabling healthcare professionals to leverage uh, the power of cannabinoids. And it gets into, of course, dosage-controlled delivery systems and the models so that physicians know how and what to prescribe to their patients. Um, on Friday uh, recently, um, sorry, can we talk about the license? I should have asked before. Oh, certainly we can talk about the, the license. We've, now that we've been, um, we were licensed to our, our first license in, in with from Health Canada in December. And so now we're focused on the next uh, direct sales license to patients, which we'd expect in single digits within 2020 to be able to access. But the license also allows us to look at doing exports because we are we have a footprint in five other countries already where we know that there's uh, markets available in order to do that, to progress with, again, a, a pharmaceutical approach. And the distribution is all going to be through pharmacy and to meet a a GMP, both a US and the EU GMP standards. And so the idea is to make products that, again, that are dosable, that are patient-slash-doctor-friendly, and that we want to make make them available for patients on a global scale. So our goal really in this one is to, now that we have our producer's license, is to start producing what's referred to as an API, or an active pharmaceutical ingredient, and then to use the finished fill facilities in places like Portugal and Australia going forward. Yeah, and the whole trip move towards APIs for certain uh, companies in the sector is something that uh, really opens the door for true pharmaceutical um, delivery. And that's, you know, there's been a, a rapid evolution in the industry over the last five years with regards to how product is being delivered to patients. Um, but other th- another thing that's evolved rapidly over the last five years is access to capital. And, you know, you were with... with uh, and Prairie Plant, like we uh, mentioned earlier, you were the first to lead a medical cannabis company into the uh, TSC. And over the last uh, eight months, we've seen a huge market adjustment uh, from where it was. And, you know, there was uh, perhaps there was too much euphoria earlier, but perhaps there's too much desperation in some people's minds today. 
uh, we do see the market, uh, you know, trends and evolution coming. Uh, and look, reality has to set in that this is a massive market and opportunity, which is just early in development and, you know, too much the pendulum swings too far one direction or the other. But there are positive signs in the market. But now that you're going through it again, how are you finding the, uh, because a lot of our listeners are going through funding rounds and development of their companies. How are you seeing it as being different than it was the last time you had to raise capital into a private company, let alone into a public one? It's a great question, Richard. So just a little bit of background. When we first got our, our, the project in December 2000, we had raised a little bit of money, but we had to borrow most of it because it was really hard to find equity even in those days because as it was it was so taboo the you know cannabis space anything was taboo for financing so we had to borrow every red cent up to 18 percent interest when we built that first chamber and i tell you that was really expensive to to be able to cash flow that in the early years and then as we moved in, when the you know everybody caught the wave of uh, the idea of the rec market coming into canada there was more the concept that that was what you know production-based ca- capacity was what you know people were financing loans based on the productive capacity, and I always knew that that was uh, basically an ag model inverted, which is the wrong way to approach it. And there was a correction coming. I always referred to it as a dot bong was eventually going to show up, and I think we're right in the throes of it today. The dot, the dot bong, but I think it, it's not to be. It's not going to stay that way forever. What I think the, the, ultimately what no, no, investors are looking for is the you know execution fundamentals that you can deliver what you say you can do. So you don't put out guidance for things that you can't do, you can't deliver on. You got to build in some sensitivity to where the pricing is going to be on whatever product you're you're selling. And then from my vantage point, it's being able to predict on a global scale what's going to happen. It's not just in our case, it's not just Canada centric. But if you can imagine as a Canadian company, we have the advantage over a lot of other areas uh, where we have degrees of freedom to operate to exp- to export to other countries to start where we're being invited to do it, such as in France and in Germany and so forth. So we can actually then, you know, think about sales that are coming on an international basis. And when we present those cases, despite the downturn that's happening, we are getting some traction, although there's the skeptics, they want to wait till the carnage is over before they start pricing, but there still is a tremendous amount of money on the sidelines. And I think it's really a function of, you know, in our, in our case especially, we're proving that we can execute on what we say we can do, and we won't provide guidance that isn't something that we can that we can't live within. You got to provide something that's meaningful and build in some buffer there, so you exceed what you're saying you're going to do, and that, that you get a track record of actually, you know, doing better than what you said you could do. And I think all those things build in towards investor confidence. Right now, the guys that went before us, I mean, they gave these wild, wild expectations of what they thought the rec market was going to provide for investors. And of course, everybody's been summarily disappointed. Now, that's going to take some time to sort of clear it all out. But I think eventually, everybody also recognizes that those markets are big and they are coming. That, you know, they're suggesting that the market globally is going to be north of $200 billion by 2025. So there still is lots of opportunity. It's just a function of making sure that whatever uh, whatever business that individuals are using, including ourselves, that we somehow uh, distinguish ourselves that we have a significant competitive advantage in a certain segment of the business. And I think those fundamentals are really what the investors are going to be looking forward toward in the future. Oh, absolutely. And you know, investors are are right to be skeptical of some crazy announcements that happen along the way and leads to credibility issues, but companies that are executing 
you know, should be rewarded and uh, embraced because quite on uh, all boats float, right? And we want to make sure that uh, the industry is recognized for what it's doing right. One of the issues I see is uh, a lot of confusion in the market with regards to when numbers come out, like two weeks, I think, or three weeks ago now, there was a report in the Financial Times about uh, large stockpiles of cannabis at the LPs. But when you peel back the layers, you recognize one, it's the recreational product. And when people are saying they're disappointed in the numbers from the recreational market, and that's impacting the rest of the industry, need to take a step further back and look at the distribution systems. And you know, I, here in Canada, the which is, of course, the leader and we all look to right now still is uh, from a uh, market perspective, all that inventory that's been piled up and there was some write-downs you know, we've got a market like Ontario where the, the estimate is there needs to be a thousand distribution points and there's 14. Or a market like Montreal with a city of 3.7 million people where there's one store in downtown Montreal and it only opens sporadically because they can't keep stock uh, in the system. And so we've got a broken distribution system for where the government has uh, implemented something and in parallel, we've got the dispensaries and the other uh, companies that are still operating a bit in the gray, impacting the uh, the sales on the other side. And of course, the government's imposed excise tax on the legal channels, whereas the uh, gray area uh, doesn't have that. And so we're getting really mixed, you know, when news that sounds bad at first, and then when you recognize, but wait a second, the distribution system to make those sales possible isn't there yet. Um, and that affects the medical market as well, where people, you know, paint everything with the same brush. Do you see, do you see that changing soon? Well, it's a, a great characterization of the current condition. And, you know, there's a couple of aspects that when you touched on, Richard, that are like ring too, like the lack of enforcement on either market is causing a problem. So the gray market uh, is that's operating without being taxed certainly is causing some challenges from a competitive advantage perspective because they can they can undercut on price. But I think more importantly, when we differentiate between a rec market and with the edibles market that's uh, that's already at, at hand, when we have the edibles market that, that allows for consumables, that's that's going to change the dynamics, number one. Number two is, you know, obviously more distribution points is also going to change in how it in a race. But in the medical side where we're really focused, what's really been problematic is the fact that pharmacies haven't been allowed to do distribution either, except for shoppers online and Rexall now online. And what we see going forward is distribution through normal channels is going to become sort of the, the gateway, shall we say, for really seeing those sales increases. And so I think Oh, our parallel is that we want to see how this can be done properly and streamlined so patients can get access again without creating confusion in the marketplace because who is the customer? In a recreational environment, the customer is somebody who's looking to, you know, for all intents and purposes, escape reality for a while and enjoy their, their time. Somebody who's in a wellness market such as CBD is just looking for something that sort of augments a little bit of their lifestyle. Somebody in the pharmaceutical market, though, is looking to dial in in a precise dose, something to manage an acute symptom or a symptom of or a chronic condition, and get on and just enough to manage a condition to get on with their day. And much many of your, your listeners might not know that to manage a, a, a pain condition, for example, takes one tenth the dose that would that would happen if you were to get high. So in other words, getting high is an overdose response. So to 
get a patient to manage their pain, it would take one-tenth of that to manage their pain and then get on with their day. And so, again, it's about segmenting which markets that the individuals are really targeting. And in our case, distribution is still, I think, still behind because we don't have uh, pharmacies yet to do it in Canada. Although, I have to say, outside of Canada, where the bigger m- bigger markets are, 100% of it's going through pharmacies. So we're, we're, that's what we're going to be focused on. Yeah, and it's it's incredibly different how the uh, distribution has been applied in uh, in other markets. In Canada falling behind by not streamlining and opening up that uh, clean and clear distribution, and unfortunately, that leaves a lot of uh, patients who would like a dosage controlled or a you know a a true medical product that is uh, has the purity and the cleanliness and the testing and that they know exactly what they're getting all the time. Uh, leaves them going into uh, the rec market to find that product. So let's come back to that uh, after this break. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Fetch your earbuds and stay tuned for some pure pet care conversation. Hi, it's Angela Ardolino with It's a Dog's Life, and I have Hernanda Umana joining me. We're just both so fascinated with how much we've learned since we've been in this pet industry and creating an all-natural product. Because it's a dog's life. I am a huge fan of my guest today, Dr. Bob Goldstein. I have, in my experience, not seen many natural substances produce the results that CBD is producing in the animals that we are testing on. It's a Dog's Life with Angela Ardolino, only on Cannabis Radio. Let me welcome Nick Hexum from 311. We've never heard things like your music when it first came out. It's like to mix the reggae with the punk and all of that together was just such an unusual sound and and we loved it. We realized we're not going to copy what's on the radio. At the time, it was all grunge that was on the radio. And I said, let's just stick to what we know and wait for a culture to come around to us. Hey, it's Nick Hexum from 311, and you're listening to Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina on CannabisRadio.com. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or eight years old. You can still learn something that's gonna make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The concierge for better living with Doc Rob. Only on cannabisradio.com. Climbing our way up, up, up to the cannabis summit of success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. I'm Richard Zwicky, back with Brent Settle on the Green Peak. Brent, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, Zias is operating in multiple countries and uh, to coordinate with the pharmacies from a distribution system, but also around the global trade. 
which countries are you operating in and why did you choose them? We have three European countries, uh, Luxembourg, Portugal, and Germany. And we have a one, we have an office in Louisville, Kentucky, and then we have an office in Australia, as well as Canada. So the idea is that we're looking at a, a you know both in terms of distribution of the what I call the exempted markets first, the oil products, or cannabis oil products that'll be precisely dosed, but they'll be in a they'll have to use a, basically a dropper or to in order to in order to administer them and they can be they can be used as an oral ingestion they're mixed with olive oil then we're moving the second part of that is we're moving into capsules and topicals but in in a a prescribed formulation that we're going to first put through clinical trials so we're going to enter into preclinical trials early in 2020 and the idea is that uh, we want to make sure that those are then progressed through a normal channel we have a couple of products that were that are coming off right away that we're going to put through the, the clinical trial process so in order to do that though we had to have offices in those jurisdictions not only for the exempted distribution such as in europe but also then for the clinical trials that we're targeting in those countries as well right now that's uh that's very true, and I think that's something which a lot of people underestimate that uh, the degree of involvement you need in each of the local markets as you distribute. I know we've uh, we just uh, completed recently shipments into Germany and uh, the Netherlands from Colombia, and we have other shipments going to uh, multiple other jurisdictions uh, by the end of 2019 and more in early 2020. And it's uh, almost like you need a paint by numbers for every single market because the regulatory frameworks are, although they're aligned in many ways, they're very, very unique from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And uh, companies which are looking at going global in this space or talk about it really have a lot of homework to do around regulatory frameworks and uh, build outs. You, you went through that with uh, Canamed before with the EU GMP uh, standard and build that you had to work to. Are you looking at it or approaching it any differently this time through with Zayas? The business model is going to still focus on a GMP manufacturing. So we, we're our business model basically is we're buying flour from a select number of growers that we we can help to teach or. or Make sure their systems are are all there that can can pass the standards needed to go into a pharmaceutical grade product. But then we use an ethanol extraction process, and then we we'll, to make the concentrate, and then blend it with olive oil when we're done. And so what we're thinking about going forward is that that way we can dial in the specific dose as we get through that, because we're going to have some ability to to manage that going forward. So from our vantage point, we think that that's the, probably the best approach in order to bring pharmaceutical products to patients and then get the extract into a very doseable formats. Oh, fundamentally agree. I mean, uh, it isn't controlling the, uh, effectively controlling where the, how the ingredients are blended and managed to make sure that you've got the same outcomes and same uh, materials every time. That's key to patients. And uh, that's something that's funny when we talk about patients, it's also something people overlook because most, so many in the, who are operating around the space don't recognize, you know, what you touched on earlier. There's over 120 different cannabinoids in the plant, and people look at two and don't recognize really the value of all the other ones. Uh, so true. So the 
the, it, to get them precisely dosed, there has to be that manufacturing discipline. And GMP are good manufacturing practices. There's different grades. There's a Canadian one. There's a U.S. kind. There's an EU or type and, and so forth. So you have to be compliant with a number of them to be able to export. So our goal is to be EU GMP compliant and U.S. GMP compliant to manufacture the drugs that meet that precise dosing. And the whole reason behind that is to get exactly that. So the patient has a managed, you know, they they self-titrate, so they manage the dose they get, but it has to be repeatable every single time they take and use it, that they can rely on that consistency when it comes to their own medication and dosing. One of the criticisms that were faced in us in the early years and as well as some of the other competitors is that, you know, when they say a product is, is X, when the patient goes back to use it the next time, it's way off the mark by 50% sometimes. And so then they end up taking too much or they end up not taking enough. And, and so it becomes a, long, a lot of criticism, even though it says the same thing. It's, it's a certain, you know, Gorilla Green or whatever it might be. Yep. It doesn't produce the same, right? It doesn't because it's a different product. And so under a GMP scenario, you get to that precision that gives that consistency every single time that the patient can rely on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for us, one of the things we had to do and work through with uh, our customers in Europe is we uh, our first shipments are matched up to uh, lab results for COAs. And we do a ring test to make sure we have consistency across all the labs. So, and then... The uh, initial shipments are tested by the receivers, so like in Germany, in the in the first couple of shipment cases, so that they can align the COAs that are provided in Colombia and make sure they they match up with what they're seeing at their own internal labs and national labs, so that they know and to expect whenever a shipment leaves uh, of the raw ingredients that it's going to have uh, some degree of consistency, so they know what's coming ahead of time. And our challenge and our model is to make sure we we ensure what's being shipped matches with their expectations because you know people just saying you know it's twenty percent of one and ten you know and ten percent or whatever of another and so on and so forth isn't good enough when you've got a hundred different other ingredients in there that could affect a patient and reducing it down to the APIs uh, is critical um, along the way and hugely overlooked. I think that the thing is that very often, again, a differentiator and and thinking about things going forward, there's going to be more discipline required in manufacturing. So it's not just going to be good enough just to grow. It's going to be required if any kind of value-added processing is going to have to step it up. And the guys and the individuals and companies that do that well will succeed in the future. I think that really just speaks to the execution. And I think to the earlier point, the investors who take a look at that and understand that there is that difference in the market and all companies are, you know, aren't created equal in the space. Also the investors who should be rewarded by taking that leap um, to build out and support, but also understanding that the, you know, the the companies that are focused on the uh, core value and the core patient needs are really at a level of consistency and sophistication that's also more dependable and uh, forecastable over time. And that's a that's a huge difference over uh, other markets where there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in branding and consumer products and the like, which the medical market doesn't really won't really be addressing for a while. Um, yeah. We, last point before we have to jump, Brent, because I know we've uh, we're near the end of our segment. Your thoughts on that? 
Well, I think the, the, the reality is that, again, coming back to those three market segments, you know, the discipline that's going to require for each market is going to be um, succinct. And I think there's going to be a, it's a totally different set of products when you're in the, in the pharmaceutical market versus in the rec market versus nutraceutical. And I think that individuals who decide which market they're going in and become, you know, aligned with that and, and focus on those things will be the ones that will be successful going forward within their, within their abilities. And I think those are really going to be at the end of the day, that's going to be help to differentiate the different markets. It's unusual that we've got a one plant that produces enough for three different types of markets. But I think the, the companies that get it, where they understand their specific customer base and what their specific needs are, as well, are the ones that are going to succeed. Absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, we're both we're both very much aligned. We're on the B2B supply end and you're building out and working with the healthcare professionals around basically the the final uh, product that patients will use. But we're all looking at, uh, you know, the fact that despite early treatments, patients continue to suffer because of lack of access to the medication they need or in the formulations they depend on. And those are both problems we're trying to resolve at different areas of the supply chain between the growing of the plant and the final delivery to uh, the consumer. But that's also the part that is the most rewarding in every area. So thanks for joining us today on the uh, show, Brent. And I look forward to having you on again in the future. It's been uh, very interesting and insightful. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening today. I'm Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak and uh, look forward to chatting with you again next week. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.